0: Well, hey, Praxis, I hope all of you are remaining joyful in Christ despite everything going on in the world, as well as an extended period of time being at home. Uh, So glad to be with you this evening, and I look forward to not only study God's Word with you this evening, but to catch up with uh, those of you who plan to stick around afterwards uh, for the Zoom hangouts. And obviously, it's not as ideal uh, to meet online like this, seeing as how it seems like It might be for a prolonged period of time in light of the current circumstances we are facing here locally, but praise God, we can still gather. And so with that in mind, I'd like to draw your attention to uh, the source of hope and encouragement that we have during times like this, and that is God's Word. And in particular, we'll be continuing our study in the book of 1 Peter this evening. Uh, So please go ahead and open your Bibles and turn with me there. Tonight we'll be looking at verses 12 through 19 in chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. So I'll go ahead and read our passage and then we'll pray for our time this evening. 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verses 12, this is the word of God. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. As though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But lo- uh, let not none of you uh, suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evil doer, or as a meddler. While doing good, let's pray. God, even uh, as we just read from Your Word, uh, many of us perhaps come with heavy hearts from thoughts of or experiences of suffering. Perhaps some of us are jaded. Perhaps some of us have become callous because of it. Yet, yeah, Lord, we pray that Your Spirit would embolden our minds, strengthen our hearts when it comes to how we view suffering. Help us to renew our minds by Your living Word so that we might not merely try to survive and get through life as we follow you, but thrive as living stones, as your beloved children. Help us, God, to approach this time with attentiveness, attentiveness, that we might yearn to learn from your word with eager hearts, and and that may translate from our hearts to our hands and feet, so we might live and walk in light of Christ. We ask this in the name of your precious Son, and our Lord, Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. It was once said that relationships are like a collision of two very different people. While we may readily acknowledge the common ground we have with another person, perhaps a mutual interest in the same activity or hobby we might like, we must admit that there are major differences in the people we have relationships with in our lives. We see this in our friendships. And perhaps for those of you who happen to be in a dating relationship, engaged or even married, perhaps what I just said about a collision really resonates with you. In fact, one of the joys of being a part of a larger church with a diverse congregation with various seasons of life is that it gave me the opportunity to ask newly married couples what they discovered about their spouses after being married. You know, like beyond the honeymoon phase. And one thing that always piqued my interest was learning about the pronouns differences and expectations that they had before, during, and after marriage. It could be something as ridiculous as, well, she prefers to orient the toilet paper with an over-orientation, but he prefers the toilet paper with an underside orientation. Some of you may know what I mean. Uh, He likes to keep the seat up, but I prefer to keep it down. But I'll try to bring it back to where most of us probably relate, since after all, we're praxis, despite the background behind me for VBS next week. You ever have someone do something for you or give you a gift out of goodwill of their heart and the way they expected you to respond was drastically different from how you actually felt about it? So then you put on this academy award-winning act and say, oh great, yeah that's awesome or kind of like those movies where someone gets a gift or taste homemade food where they're expected to be ecstatic and happy, but as they open it or test the food out for themselves, that developing smile develops into a face that has, uh, okay, thanks, I guess, written all over it. Or they try to fake a, yum, yeah, this tastes pretty good. At the end of the day, uh, the common connection in these scenarios that I just gave have to do with differences in expectations. You see, when differences in expectations exist, what often happens is disappointment. We feel or become disappointed in life when our expectations don't measure up or jive with our actual experience. We become disappointed when we don't perhaps get the job we always dreamed of or wished for. Or we feel disappointed when we have unmet expectations when it comes to dating relationships or perhaps a lack of a dating relationship feeling like, like God gave you the gift of singleness for this season of life, but in reality, it's just a gift you want to return and give back to him and exchange it for a gift card that, you can be, that can be used on a date. We feel disappointed when our plans basically get shut down and postponed because of COVID-19 and the subsequent lockdown, which many of us currently face right now. So Praxis, being real here, have you ever found yourself disappointed with God? Maybe because God didn't give you what you want? You know, if we're being honest, all of us struggle when our theology doesn't match our shifting feelings about God. Yet by the grace of God, we can look back on our past and in hindsight affirm that even though God doesn't give us what we want, he always provides us with what we need. And it's always done so for our good and his glory. Even if we didn't, didn't really like it or want to acknowledge this truth at that moment. Well, when we come in our passage here today, I can't help but think that there may be some of us who may have read this passage on suffering with a tinge of disappointment, a bit of unmet expectations from what maybe you're experiencing in life right now, where you thought God would bring you to by now. Yet in times like this, or when we think of God with disappointment, what we really need, well, in addition to repenting of our sinful attitude is to recalibrate our theology of suffering. After all, that's why Peter mentions suffering here yet again in this letter. This wasn't the first time Peter brought up the topic of suffering. If you've been with us for the past few months, uh, we've learned from this book that Christians are to view themselves as being distinct from, uh, be- because of their dual citizenship. Uh, they are citizens of their geographical location or place of physical birth, but they are also primarily citizens of heaven since their spiritual birth. Or to use the words of 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, they are born again to a living hope. And as citizens of heaven, Christians were supposed to see themselves here on earth as exiles, as sojourners. That is a foreigner passing through whose primary citizenship and identity lies elsewhere like alien and strangers in a foreign land longing to finally arrive at their eternal home with Jesus Christ. And so Peter, as a shepherd, who's quite aware of the difficulty and suffering these Christians were going through, especially in the context of persecution for the religious faith, provide them with words of hope, hope for suffering sojourners, the very name of our teaching series. And not only is Peter thematical in addressing the topic of suffering over and over again, he's also radical in how he frames Christian suffering in today's verses. In verse 12, it reads, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. It is here in our passage tonight that Peter provides his final words in this letter on the theme of suffering so that we might respond appropriately in our suffering. These words would have definitely struck a chord with believers back then, as it does today, Com- contemporary believers such as us. When we read this, we think, fiery trials? just This is what we get for following Jesus? I'm going to suffer for my faith? How is that not surprising? But we must realize that Peter is writing to encourage believers. He calls them beloved, and that's a term of endearment one who's willing to put himself out there and even say hard things during hard times. Why? Because he loves and cares for them. And so this evening we'll be looking at our key idea from this passage, and the key idea from these verses is this, that as Christians we must respond rightly to suffering so that we may honor and glorify Christ. And we're going to be looking at four proper responses to suffering as Christians. The first proper response is to expect suffering. And this is found in verse 12, to expect suffering. What ought to catch our attention at the outset of Peter's words is this straightforward imperative to not be surprised by suffering. It is a reality of the Christian life. Yet many of us forget this fact. We feel like we didn't get the memo after our, it goes against our modern sensibilities. Why wouldn't we want that? When that happens, difficulty is seen as abnormal, an aberration in life to be avoided if possible. And rather than suffer, the default impulse of our hearts is a desire for comfort and bliss. But here we learn this very important truth that suffering is considered to be common for Christians. You see, when we're surprised, like a surprise birthday party, we're caught off guard when someone we didn't plan or anticipate to happen actually uh, takes place. There's the good surprises in life, like birthdays, proposals, news of pregnancy, a new job offer. But there's also what we would call bad surprises. Things we don't want to be surprised about. Bad news from a doctor after running a few additional tests. Being suddenly laid off from your job. Unrest and and turmoil in the society we live in. A season of escalated suffering. In situations like this, we we think to ourselves, no, no, this can't be right. This can't be happening to me. Things like this should never happen to people like us. Yet even for these surprises in life, life's curveballs in the form of suffering, Peter simply says, don't be surprised. In other words, don't let suffering throw your faith off course. Don't be unhinged and unanchored by the unwelcome arrival of suffering you will face. And he's not saying you can't lament about suffering. He's not saying you can't bring your sufferings to God in prayer. He's not saying you can't cry. He's not, he's not saying you should avoid counsel or not seek help from others to help you through your suffering. But what he is saying is that, don't, that you shouldn't let suffering rattle the foundations of your faith in God. It was necessary to provide this exhortation because believers needed to understand that suffering is to be expected. So Peter's giving a heads up, an advance warning so they can prepare for it. But not only is it to be expected and a real part of our lives as Christians, he calls the reality of life a fiery trial. And this word for fiery trial is viewed by some to possibly allude to physical persecution that believers were guaranteed to face, something so intense that it will burn or consume you. However, the problem with this view is that nowhere does Peter explicitly say that he has that in mind. Rather, when we look at the context of this verse and compare it to chapter 1, verse 6 through 7, where he previously talked about trials and connects that to fire, we get the idea that suffering acts as a refining fire that reveals God's purifying presence in our lives rather than his absence, that God uses suffering to refine our faith. In Christ, like a hot, cold furnace burns away the impurities from precious metal, leaving only pure silver or gold. Like the psalmist says in Psalm 6610 when he proclaimed, For you, O God, have tested us, you have tried us as silver is tried. This is the reality of Christian suffering. It provides an opportunity to refine and strengthen our faith in Christ. It's meant to test you so that your suffering might not take hold of you, but purify you as you take hold of suffering for Christ. A test that reveals your faith is genuine because your faith in Christ stands and is solidified when we, you, me and you suffer. In practice, that's the question before us today that beckons an answer. Are you surprised? Are you surprised that Peter tells you not to be surprised about suffering? Because for myself and many others that group in the church, we oftentimes were surprised. And maybe you've had the experience too where we thought the gospel was to set Jesus into your life and make all your wrongs right. We expected that everything uh, will start to go well and be, we'll be blessed with all that we desire, that God positively sets you on the right track in life, just so you have enough faith and can believe in him, that he'll, he'll begin to give you whatever you want. Uh, and for some of us, we may have been exposed to this sort of health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, absent of the realities of suffering. Why do I know this, even though I never attended that sort of prosperity, uh, wealth, promise type of church? Well, it's because I could name a handful that I grew up with who are no longer walking with the Lord, no longer have faith in Jesus Christ, but have since renounced their faith. A common response when catching up with them at, you know, some wedding or a friend's birthday or a reunion is I often hear, it just wasn't for me. I just couldn't come to terms with placing my faith in in God because I was going through so much suffering. How can God do that to me and put me through that if he says he loves me? I thought Jesus would offer me happiness, and I was no longer experiencing that happiness. I thought I could find comfort, but I still found difficulty. And these sorts of thoughts, brothers and sisters, are thoughts of those who were surprised by suffering. And we can be in danger of such an attitude and mindset. Even as gospel-loving, Bible-believing Christians, we can, we can, as believers who have certain expectations, a desire for a life of comfort, an air of entitlement, rather than humble, a humble recipient of God's grace. We can compare ourselves with others and think, life's not fair because someone else has something we don't have. And in our hearts, disappointment and discontentment sets in, due to unmet expectations. For some, it might be why God does not provide you with a spouse, even as you try to be faithful in your service to him. Or perhaps, why can you not find a job in the area you spent so much of your time and dedication studying for? We're caught off guard and surprised because we have ceased to reflect on the true gospel of Jesus Christ. While Jesus offers us salvation by grace alone through faith in him, being God's son who died on the cross and rose to pay the price for our sins so that we could be forgiven and counted as righteous. We forget that while salvation is a free gift from God, it is a costly gift. We forget that Christ himself, when he called others to follow him, also asked those who would follow him to count the cost, to count the cost of discipleship. To follow Christ will cost you. It may cost you relationally with non-believers and even physically by persecution in certain countries and nations in the world. It is a life that promises tribulation, that promises trouble, and the call of the gospel remains the same in the first century as it does today. That to follow Christ means to deny yourself daily, take up your own cross and follow after him. Taking up your own cross didn't just mean wearing a cross around your neck or wearing a Christian camp t-shirt or getting a tattoo or a cross or Bible verse on your wrist or arm. Taking up your cross meant to follow after Christ so zealously and devotedly that, what, that you could confidently say, just as Jesus took up his cross and suffered, I'm willing to suffer in the, the same way that he did. And that appropriately leads us now to the second proper response to suffering, that we are to rejoice in suffering to rejoice in suffering, verses 13 to 14. Peter provides this, starting in verse 13, where Peter's exhortation here is to rejoice in your suffering because you identify with Christ's own suffering. A type of suffering that allows you to exhibit and experience joy because it's a connection point to your relationship with Christ. Knowing this truth empowers me and you to rejoice in Christ. You know, one of the reasons we suffer for the sake of righteousness as believers is that it provides proof we belong to Christ, that we identify with him, that he has called us his own and knows us by by, by name and that we truly know him, which ought to lead us to rejoice. The word for rejoice here means to be in a state of happiness or well-being, just like Jesus suffered at the hands of those who opposed him, we too share in the same sufferings by those who oppose Jesus today. But some of you might be thinking, You know, why should this bring me happiness or lead me to rejoice? How is that going to lead me to happiness in Christ? Where's the logic in that? How does joy coexist with suffering? Well, to really understand the reason for suffering, we must understand that when we suffer for Christ in this life, it provides the grounds or the evidence that we can expect and anticipate Christ's glory in the future. Our present suffering is meant... Uh, means that we can anticipate a future deliverance and that this is going to occur at the return of Christ in the future when we see him face to face. The exhortation to rejoice is grounded in our hope in God's promises of, of, of a future salvation, just like Peter wrote earlier in 1 Ch- Peter chapter 1, verse 8-9, to nine, that though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith. The salvation of your souls. So, what this means is that when we suffer just as Christ did, we can rejoice because it's evidence that we will one day be delivered from all forms of suffering, especially that of suffering that resulted from trying to be faithful followers of Christ. As pastor theologian Tom Schreiner writes, our current suffering for Christ is a prelude to the glory to follow. And that is why Peter calls them blessed even when they're called names or talked down upon so as to diminish their importance or standing in society and culture, the word "bless" here echoes the words of Christ when he preached the Beatitudes, saying in Matthew 5, verses 11 through 12, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you, falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you, and even though believers suffer insults and verbal persecutions for their beliefs in Christ, from God's vantage point, they're blessed. They're blessed because the Spirit of God resides in them. Their particular suffering provides, uh, proves that they have the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit proves that they belong to God as a pledge of their future salvation when Jesus returns. The Holy Spirit also reveals God's presence in the believer's suffering. That they're not left alone to their own devices. That the spirit of God that rests upon Christ also rests on you. And Peter likely had in mind here this messianic prophecy in Isaiah chapter 11 verses 1 through 2. Where it says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So what Peter is saying is that that same Spirit of God that was promised to rest on the Messiah also rests now on believers willing to suffer for Jesus Christ. The reason for suffering for Christ is that it points to our future salvation and that, brothers and sisters, allows us to rejoice in the Lord and confidently know we have been blessed and that the Spirit of God rests upon us. Praxis, I hope this is an encouragement to you. And helps you to have joy for the Lord in the midst of suffering. Just as Christ suffered, his suffering was redemptive. His suffering, while being obedient even to death, he rose and was glorified. Christ, we follow, uh, Christians, we follow that same path. We're on the same trajectory, the same steps as Jesus walked. Well, let us now look at the third proper response to suffering as Christians that you are to assess your suffering. You are to assess your suffering. That's in verses 15 through 16. Peter continues with another exhortation of what shouldn't uh, characterize their life as suffering sojourners. Their suffering shouldn't be as a murderer, thief, evildoer, or as a meddler. This fourfold list characterizes negative behaviors that are unpleasing to the Lord. They're examples of sin that go against God's will and his perfect standard of holiness. Murder and theft were prohibited in the Ten Commandments of the Old Testament, and even in the New Testament period, one could be prosecuted under Greco-Roman law. The word evildoer broadens the applicability, the application of what Peter is saying. That there is a broad category of conduct that's not pleasing to God that will lead to consequential suffering. And while this isn't a comprehensive list of behavior that might lead to consequences such as monetary fines, jail time, or execution. Peter's point is that these examples of suffering don't qualify as a type of Christian suffering he was referring to in the previous verses. That not all suffering qualifies under the umbrella of God's blessing where one should rejoice. When we suffer as a consequence of our sin, it should never be a cause for joy from God's vantage point, nor is it ever viewed positively in the pages of scripture. Yet Peter knows all too well the propensity of man's heart and mind to justify evil or to try to rationalize away punishments or categories as categories of Christian suffering. And so that's why Peter encourages and reminds believers indirectly here to walk on the path of godliness. Don't let suffering you are, the suffering you're experiencing be the kind that's a direct consequence of your sinful actions. There is a righteous suffering for Christ's sake and in unrighteous suffering due to your opposition to Christ through your conduct. And while it's pretty clear that murder and stealing can lead to consequences, it's interesting that Peter ends uh, verse 15 by stating that none should suffer because they're an evildoer or meddler. At least for the word meddler, it's a word that's unique only to Peter, formed by two Greek words when put together means overseer of another's affairs. It pictures someone who is a busybody, always preoccupied with the other people's business. And if believers act as busybodies, the type of suffering they can expect to experience is that of social suffering, treated like an outcast because no one trusts the, uh, the person, because he or she is seen as being annoying. And while Peter never accuses believers of actually being perpetrators of these examples of suffering, the, the fact that he includes it means we can't disregard the lesson he intends for us. It should cause us to pause and reflect praxis and ask whether a particular form of suffering we are experiencing in our lives is perhaps a consequence of our own doing. Or we tend to explain away and give reasons to avoid the suffering we deserve. Uh, You know, on on grades, if we maybe cheat on exam, what do you expect would happen, right? It's going to bite us back. There are consequences. Stay up all night playing video games, and can't focus on your work the next days or other responsibilities in life, that's the consequence of our own action, right? Or say, for example, you're listening to John Piper sermons and always trying to evangelize your coworkers, you know, outside of lunch and break time that you never actually do your work, that you're paid to do. Don't be surprised if you suffer for it by your employer. You get a dock on performance on unprof- professional conduct. That probably isn't persecution for Christ's sake. These are just a few examples of how we can wrongly suffer at times as a consequence of our own conduct. Rather, instead, in verse 16 indicates, we should suffer as a Christian. And we can suffer for the right reasons rather than the wrong reasons. The type of suffering that doesn't result because of any fault or guilt of our own, but because we seek to be faithful followers of Christ and obedient to his will. The only crime or guilty accusation that should actually stick on us in society and culture, is that we're guilty of having faith in Christ and trying to live obediently to him. This is the type of suffering that one does not need to be ashamed about. The title or marker or identity Christian here was not actually what believers of Christ called themselves within the early church community initially. It was actually a nickname that outsiders looking in, those not part of the church door believers, gave and labeled followers of Jesus. And it was later gradually picked up and, and adopted by Christians, proudly as recorded in Acts 11:26. 26. Peter concludes, concludes verse 16 with, the proper response to suffering should be to glorify God in that name. But what's difficult is concluding whether that name refers to the name for Jesus Christ or the name Christian. But whichever interpretation you take, the idea that if you're going to suffer as representatives of Christ, bearing the name Christian for one who seeks uh, the one who seeks to glorify the name of Christ through your life. Let your life conduct be consistent with your identity with him. Or one who calls him, him or herself a Christian. And that finally brings us to our fourth proper response to suffering. To trust God when suffering. Verse 17 to 19. To trust God when suffering. As we come to verses 17 to, to 18, Peter provides additional motivation for why we should trust God in our suffering. He then ends with this actual uh, actual exhortation in verse 19. However, what's interesting and perhaps confusing is why judgment functions as a motivation to respond in trust when suffering as Christians. And to understand that we have to connect all these verses together as Peter develops his argument. Starting with the four in verse 17, he connects back to what was just said about suffering in verse 16 just as there's a type of right and wrong suffering there's a type of judgment to experience by believers and a type of judgment or reckoning to be experienced by those who do not believe in Jesus Christ judgment first begins with those who belong to God's who belong to God's household that is God's people for the believer this isn't a judgment of wrath or condemnation that they're going to experience but judgment in the sense that all men will stand before God including believers and this judgment will be brought to a good end for us because we because of our standing in Christ. Therefore this isn't a judgment that's punitive for us. Yet at the same time our present sufferings is integrally tied to God's future eschatological judgment. And this particular future judgment, if it's not a punitive judgment, which is something we often read into our into into the word in our English language. But judgment here means the action of judging and delineating who is truly Christ's people and who isn't. Kind of like Jesus' parable where he judges the sheep and then the goats. The sorting out of humanity starts first with sorting out and discerning who is, belongs to the household of God. So our present suffering is connected with judgment in that because we profess Christ, we are the first ones to be tested through God's judging action that occurs during our lives with the culmination of it being found in a future judgment where we are ultimately found to be God's people in Christ. Yet the outcome of judgment for those who are not of the household of God is starkly different. And here is where verse 17 transitions into verse 18, where he says, or Peter draws from Proverbs eleven thirty one, as he connects it to the difficulty of salvation and restates verse 17 in proverbial form. Even Jesus conceptually taught about the difficulty of salvation. Not difficult in the sense that you have to do enough good works to be saved, or that it's difficult for God to save as if he were limited in ability or power as an omnipotent God, but rather in the sense that the door is narrow and many will seek to enter, but few will find it. In the sense that hostility in the present life accompanies the path of salvation for those who follow Christ. The world's response to the claims of the gospel and exclusive belief in Jesus is marked with scorn, marked with hostility and persecution and combined with the pressures to conform to the world, all make it difficult for Christians to remain faithful to Christ to the end. Christians must endure, endure the, the real possibility of insults, of being ostracized, face threats, face persecution. All of this pressuring them towards denying Christ, pressuring them to abandon their faith, leading them to potentially return to their old way of life. So it's not a matter of uh, questioning whether uh, their assurance of salvation or whether they, they, they lack any security in their future deliverance, but that the road leading to salvation comes with hardship and trials. If believers have to go through such difficult experiences to ultimately be saved in the future, imagine then the magnitude of suffering that would be brought upon at the future judgment of those who reject the gospel, who do not serve or obey God, who perhaps contributed to the sufferings of Christians. And this is an argument from lesser to greater. The saving process is difficult because of the suffering believers will have to endure to be saved. And if believers are saved through the purifying and refining process via suffering, then the judgment for unbelievers must be utterly terrifying. And this is why Peter encourages believers who are suffering, because it is God's will for them to respond rightly to properly respond by entrusting their souls to a faithful creator while seeking to do good in their lives. Perhaps some of you, when you initially saw this fourth point, trust God when suffering, perhaps inquisitively thought, as opposed to what? Does that mean we shouldn't trust God when we don't feel like we're suffering? Or that we should only trust God during times of suffering? Come on, Chris, work on your clarity here. But rest assured, this... This time it was intentionally worded that way, or in the words of Admiral Akbar from Star Wars, it's a trap. The reality is we often assume that God is good and knows what he's doing when things are going well for us, right? And it feels like we're on cloud nine. So we don't question him during times like that, right? We go along our merry way. We don't pray. But when trouble or difficulty comes our way and we, We stare suffering head-on like deer looking straight into the incoming headlights. We question our relationship with God. We question his intent. We question his character. Why? Because it's often harder for me and you to entrust our lives in God's hands when we're suffering. Yet that is the final response Peter wants us to cultivate in our lives when faced with suffering. To entrust your life to God. A God who is a faithful creator. And Peter draws on God being a faithful creator to, the point, to, to point to the fact that God is sovereign, the sovereign creator of the universe and this world that we live in. He is also its creator. And just as God is sovereign over creation, he is sovereign over our suffering for his sake. And we can have confidence that he is in control and will not abandon you in your suffering, that you can trust him when you need him the most. And we demonstrate our trust in God as suffering sojourners by continuing to pursue and to do what is good in God's eyes in our lives. And I hope you can think about what that application might look like in your lives to continue to pursue good during times of suffering that you might face. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for just the time that we have to study your word, Lord. Help challenge our thoughts and views of suffering, Lord. But not just our thoughts and minds, Lord. I pray that you would help us through your spirit to respond rightly through our suffering, to think properly about our suffering, but also to respond properly, Lord, so that we might glorify and honor you through our lives, Lord, so that we might be fervent and continue to seek to do what is good, Lord, so that our suffering might not be as a consequence of our own actions, Lord, out of our own human responsibility, Lord, that our suffering might be the kind that pleases you, Lord, as we seek to do what is good and right in your own eyes and not our own. Help us, God. We need you. We need you even now, Lord, when it can be so easy and so prone to want to suffer and to act on our suffering the way we want to, Lord. We feel is right, given the current circumstances to try to justify our actions, Lord, rather than seek to continue to be faithful to you, Lord. So help us. We love and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.